Welcome to the Terry Podcast, Tales from Near and Far, read to you by Pratham Data. A Child's History of England, by Charles Dickens, read to you by Pratham Data. What we covered last time was the very famous Battle of Agincourt. This is the start of the first part of the Lancastrian Wars, which ends, which is the third part of the Hundred Years' War that starts from 1337 and goes right up into 1450s when England loses Bordeaux. But this is a very famous piece of English history because this is the very famous Battle of Agincourt. Now, Henry V, Henry of Wales, as he was originally known as, took care of the Lollards, and then when he saw that there's a lot of dissension going on in France, realised this is a good time to attack. And there, of course, was the very famous win by the English at the Battle of Agincourt, and the coming of the famous longbows, the story of how technology used properly can truly disrupt a way larger enemy. So let's carry on. Second part. That proud and wicked French nobility who tracked their country to destruction and who every day and every year regarded with deeper hatred and detestation in the hearts of the French people learnt nothing, even from the defeat of Agincourt. So far from uniting against the common enemy, they became among themselves more violent, more bloody and more false, if that were possible, than they had been before. The Count of Armagnac persuaded the French king to plunder off her treasures Queen Isabella of Bavaria and to make her a prisoner. She, who had hitherto been the bitter enemy of the Duke of Burgundy, proposed to join him in revenge. He carried her off to Troy, where she proclaimed herself regent of France and made him her lieutenant. The Armagnac party were at that time possessed of Paris, but one of the gates of the city being secretly opened on a certain night to a party of the Duke's men, they got into Paris, threw into the prisons all the Armagnacs upon whom they could lay their hands, and a few nights afterwards, with the aid of a furious mob of 60,000 people, broke the prisons open and killed them all. The former Dauphin was now dead, and the king's third son bore the title, him. In the height of this murderous scene, a French knight hurried out of bed, wrapped in a sheet, and bore away to Poitiers. So, when the revengeful Isabella and the Duke of Burgundy entered Paris in triumph after the slaughter of their enemies, the Dauphin was proclaimed at Poitiers as the real regent. King Henry had not been idle since his victory at Agincourt, but had repulsed a brave attempt of the French to recover Harfleur, had gradually conquered a great part of Normandy, and, at this crisis of affairs, took the important town of Rouen. After a siege of half a year, 
This great law so alarms the French that the Duke of Burgundy proposed that a meeting to treat of peace should be held between the French and the English kings in a plain by the river Seine. On the appointed day, King Henry appeared there with his two brothers, Clarence and Gloucester, and a thousand men. The unfortunate French king, being more mad than usual that day, could not come, but the queen came. And with her, the Princess Catherine, who was a very lovely creature and who made a real impression on King Henry now that he saw her for the first time. This was the most important circumstance that arose out of the meeting. As if it had been impossible for a French nobleman of that time to be true to his words of honour in anything, Henry discovered that the Duke of Burgundy was, at that very moment, in secret treaty with the Dauphin, and he therefore abandoned the negotiation. The Duke of Burgundy and the Dauphin, each of whom with the best reason distrusted the other as a noble ruffian surrounded by a party of noble ruffians, were rather at a loss how to proceed after this, but at length they agreed to meet on a bridge over the river Yon, where it was arranged that there should be two strong gates put up with an empty space between them and that the Duke of Burgundy should come into that space by one gate with ten men only and that the Dauphin should come into that space by the other gate, also with ten men and no more. So far, the Dauphin kept his word, but no farther. When the Duke of Burgundy was on his knee before him in the act of speaking, one of the Dauphin's noble ruffians cut the said Duke down with a small axe, and the others speedily finished him. It was in vain for the Dauphin to pretend that this base murder was not done with his consent, it was too bad even for Franz and caused a general horror. The Duke's heir hastened to make a treaty with King Henry and the French Queen engaged that her husband should consent to it, whatever it was. Henry made peace on condition of receiving the Prince Catherine in marriage and being made Regent of France during the rest of the King's lifetime and succeeding to the French crown at his death. He was soon married to the beautiful Princess and took her proudly home to England where she was crowned with great honour and glory. This peace was called the Perpetual Peace. We should soon see how long it lasted. It gave great satisfaction to the French people, although they were so poor and miserable that, at the time of the celebration of the royal marriage, numbers of them were dying in starvation on the dunghills in the streets of Paris. There was some resistance on the part of the Dauphin, some few parts of France, but King Henry beat it all down. And now, with his great possessions in France secured, and his beautiful wife to cheer him, and a son born to give him greater happiness, all appeared pride before him. But in the fullness of his triumph and the height of his power, death came upon him, and his day was done.
When he fell ill at Vincennes, he found that he could not recover. He was very calm and quiet and spoke serenely to those who wept around his bed. His wife and child, he said, he left to the loving care of his brother, the Duke of Bedford, and his other faithful nobles. He gave them his advice that England should establish a friendship with the new Duke of Burgundy and offer him the regency of France, that it should not set free the royal princes who had been taken at Agincourt, and that whatever quarrel may arise with France, England should never make peace without holding Normandy. Then he laid down his head and asked the attendant priest to chant the penitential song. Amid which solemn sounds, on the 31st of August, 1422, in only the 34th year of his age and the 10th of his reign, King Henry V passed away. Slowly and mournfully, they carried his embalmed body in a procession of great state to Paris and thence to Rouen, where his queen was, from whom the sad intelligence of his death was concealed until he had been dead some days. Thence, lying on a bed of crimson and gold, with a golden crown upon his head and a golden ball and sceptre, lying in the nerveless hands, they carried it to Calais, and with such a great retinue as seemed to tie the road black. The King of Scotland acted as chief mourner, and all the royal household followed. The knights wore black armour and black plumes of feathers. Crowds of men wore torches, making the night as light as day. And the widowed princess followed last of all. At Calais, there was a fleet of ships to bring the funeral host to Dover. And so, by way of London Bridge, where the service for the dead was chanted as it passed along. They brought the body to Westminster Abbey and there buried it with great respect. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed it, please comment and please like it and subscribe. Please do let me know if there are certain tales from whichever part of the world you might be in that you would like me to read. Thank you.